Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Bullshift, the podcast, the weekly podcast where we talk about how the financial services industry shifts your attention to make you feel more bullish. My name is John DeGuy. I'm host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshift. My guest this week is Dave Wall. Dave is an executive at Franklin Templeton working through ClearBridge, which is one of the sub-advisors. Uh, he has spent uh, pretty much his entire career in the financial services industry, having worked for a couple of banks and uh, has worked to design a thoughtful perspective on the financial services versus industry with practical ideas about what to do about how things are unfolding. Uh, in particular, Dave is the Canadian representative who does some work with the uh, Anatomy of a Recession project that the people at Franklin Temple to work, uh, work on, which they update monthly, and they use a dashboard for a statistical basis of, of uh, looking at how different economic factors and indicators are developing over time. And I thought it would be great to talk to Dave here in November, as we sit on what might be, who knows, the precipice of a recession. Dave, welcome. Hey, thanks, John. Good to, uh, good to be with you and good to see you again. I'm wondering if you could begin by laying the framework, talking about what the anatomy of a recession program is. Yeah. And after you've explained what it is, perhaps you could tell me about what the most recent readings are telling us. Yeah, I will. And, and again, thanks, thanks for having what. Thanks for having me. What we're trying to achieve here, and it's it's a, a program that's built by Jeff Schultz and Josh Jamner in the U.S., so it is U.S.-centric, John, to be honest. It's it's built around the S&P 500 and the Fed and, and the interaction between them. Um, accordingly, that works for Canada, too. I mean, there's a, a great connection between Canada and the U.S., so it's not too far-fetched to say that a lot of things that are going on can help people in the, in the Canadian market, advisors, and their clients. I'll say this, what, what the, we, we work off a recession risk dashboard, and that's really 12 variables that have historically kind of foreshadowed a looming recession. And it's, it's around the consumer, it's around business activity, it's around uh, the financial markets. And those 12 signals together either tell us, and it works off a, a stoplight analogy, green meaning expansion, yellow meaning caution, uh, red meaning you know, recessionary environment or weakening environment. So those 12 signals together told us in September of last year, they turned red and they said, oh, the overall signal was red. Not all the signals were red, but the overall signal was red, which meant that we were probably heading at some point in the future to a recessionary environment. Sometimes it was three months, sometimes it's 10 months. The longest it had been is 13 months uh, until the start of the recession in the U.S. We thought when we looked at it, because this kind of compared to all the historical recessions, and we thought this was really close to the 1990-1991 signaling, uh, kind of near the end of the business cycle, robust economic activity, but it had signaled red and it took 13 months to get there. If you fast forward now, we are just 13 months, John, till we would say that we were heading to a recession. We predicted the the second or third third quarter of this year, 
It's now not going to be that. But in our mind, the signals haven't changed. We still believe that we're in that weakening environment. We now think because the economy in the U.S. has done so well and the, and the last GDP print was very robust, we think that we're looking at probably first or second quarter of 2024 where we really hit that weakening environment. That's interesting because a lot of people would say that this is most anticipated recession in, in modern history and maybe in all of history. And a lot of people have expected that we would have been in a recession by now. And indeed, that's what the anatomy of a recession dashboard would have had us believe. Do you think there's a certain amount of complacency among uh, the financial services industry and investors in general, which is to say, do you think there are some people who think that because the recession hasn't hit yet, that maybe it won't hit ever? Yeah. Yes, yes, we do. Um, and not just... Listen, not just from the, the, the point of view of financial advisors and the investment services industry, but uh, a lot of experts and a, and a lot of uh, corporations, et cetera, are still are believing the same thing. You know, there's a few issues around that, John. One of them is um, people think that there's probably or could be a soft landing. You know, we, we did a little fun exercise at the beginning of this, uh, this well, I guess the end of this quarter or the, the third quarter, where we were looking at how many times has a corporation put in their filings and their news releases, press releases, the word soft landing? And historically, it's at as high a level as we've seen since the 1990s. Every time those counts have been at this, this level, what has happened afterwards? A recession. That's not going to say that just because there's a lot of soft landings in the, in the financial media that there's going to be a recession. But we think that there probably still is. And that's just a neat little anecdotal uh, thing to talk about and to start off our discussion. You know, people think and there might, go ahead, John. Well, so what I would say is that it's an anecdote that plays very well into the thesis of the book, Bullshift. Uh, the idea is um, when, whenever, whatever the industry is, is likely to experience, they tell their clients that the outcome is likely to be less severe than, than what it actually <laughs> ends up being. So if it's, if it's severe recession, they say it's going to be a moderate recession. If it's a moderate recession, they say it's going to be a soft landing. If it's going to be no, no it's going to be a soft landing. They say there's not even going to be a recession. And, and, and so whatever it is, there's always a, at least one order of magnitude that's less severe on the downside. That is part and parcel of the narrative you hear from the industry. And that is, so my concern, quite personally, is that that is where the industry can can let its clients down in by preparing people for things, by telling them in advance that it won't be that bad so that when they do come to experience whatever it is they experience, and that, that's not a forecast, I don't know, but my concern is that if we do have a severe recession, uh, people won't be ready for it because they've been prepared, but they've been prepared for either a soft landing or a modest recession. Right, right, I agree. Well, then that 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 point I just made does go into your narrative, whether it comes to fruition or not. I mean, our, our anatomy of a recession is to try to tell factually what we see and why we make that recommendation. So we are on, on your side when it comes to, this is what we think, this is what we believe. And although not everybody wants to hear about a recessionary environment, you want optimism all the time. You know, you and I had spoken in the past, it, it's, it's really nice to hear truth uh, truth to value and, and hear what we really honestly think. And, and our anatomy of a recession is a whole discussion around what we think, what we think the Fed is doing and why, 
And also, there might be a soft landing. There could be other variations. I mean, it's for other people to choose. But here's what we think and why we think that. So right. really, one one of the reasons we think that there is going to be a, a, you know, a recessionary environment, it hasn't happened yet, is really the lag on monetary and the effect of monetary policy. You know, we took a look at all the rate hiking cycles since the 1950s in the U.S. We kind of boxed the ones that are... Um, near the end of the cycle, you know, kind of in the same scenario we are. And of those, the average start of a recession after the start of a rate hiking cycle is 23 months. If you say we started in March of last year or thereabouts, we're getting very close again to that time period of if on average, and it varies, we could be heading right. to a recession in a short period of time. Yeah, and I and, and I think to that end, I want to give you credit, Dave, and, and Jeff Schultze and the people at Clearbridge uh, some credit for the way you've <clears> been talking about the anatomy of a recession for as for as long as I've been aware of the discourse. It's always been one of look, we're not we don't know when it's going to happen, but the, the signals are suggesting that it will happen, and and uh, we're not going to we, we don't want to weigh in too much about precise timing or or um, or, or severity, but. As time has gone on, every time you update the dashboard, it seems there's something else that's gone green to yellow or from yellow to red, and the the likelihood of recession only becomes greater. The likelihood only becomes greater, and as a result of that, if anything, you've been consistent uh, that uh, just because it hasn't happened yet, it will happen, and that's I would say different from what I hear throughout much of the rest of the industry, because much of the rest of the industry is saying, well, it hasn't happened yet. So it looks like we got shot at and missed and it's not going to happen. So I want to give I want to give you credit for um, intellectual consistency and what I would call moral leadership with regard to telling oh, it the way you want us to see it as opposed, as opposed to the way you want people to see it. Yeah. And Jeff, Jeff and, jo and Josh do a fabulous job of really taking a look at, at the variables that they look at, digging deep on all those variables, finding validation or contradiction to that to really make right. sure they understand the narrative from a, a, a simple perspective, at least. But it it uh, has been well received. You know, financial advisors globally, John, like you, there's over 250,000 of them globally now following this program to, to get a different viewpoint, uh, a viewpoint that they can pass on to their clients and 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 really make a case for against or even just use that as part of their information when they're making investment decisions right and i think that that of it by itself just have, making an informed decision right. by by having a dispassionate look at the facts and trends is of some of, of some utility yeah uh, i wonder uh i'm going to ask you in a moment to to maybe weigh in on the two or three uh factors out of the 12 that you think you you'd like to highlight but before you uh, think about what those might be. I want to ask you about small business impact. I know that there are a number of different factors that you look at, and one that I wanted to uh, ask you about in particular is is business startups and and the and the confidence that small businesses have uh, in this environment. Yeah, and and you know what, in in the U.S. and and Jeff and and Josh have done a lot of work around the small business side and the relationship with small banks to really yeah. get a feel because the, the small business has been the driver of the economy with the consumer uh, in mm -hmm. the US and, and you know, what's gonna happen to small bank or small business going forward. And, you know, first, you know, kind of take a look at what's, what's happening to small banks. And, you know, there's a few things that we think are going on with small banks that are gonna make them retrench a little bit and be a mm -hmm. little bit uh, uh, less willing to lend. 
couple of them. One, commercial real estate. Small banks have about 70% of the commercial real estate loan business. Commercial real estate in the U.S. right now is struggling. We, we do know that, and we think that that's going to cause small banks to, to retrench a little bit on those loans to, to really make sure that they're in good shape there and, and probably retrench and hold back on lending as well. Two, you know, small banks are kind of in the same boat as the regionals, and, and we all know what happened to the regional banks earlier this year. We don't think that's going to happen to small banks, but you know what? They have some of the same issues that, again, they want to make sure their balance sheet is in good shape. Their customer base is in good shape, so we think that's going to slow down small bank activity. And and lastly, small banks they lend to small business. That that's really right. their their line of opportunity and their their line of profitability. And we think that that's going to really be uh, be slowing down, partly for uh, uh, the reasons that I talked about earlier. But the demand for corporate loans as well is slowing down. They're they're if if banks are unwilling to lend. Corporations are also saying we don't want a loan right now, and if small banks are retrenching, John, that has a big impact on their primary customer, which is small business. And just a couple of examples of what's gone on for small business in the last little while. At the time of the pandemic, 2020s, small business were were paying about four percent on their on their uh, outstanding loans, and um, because they can't go to the capital markets and they can't do a, a long dated uh, uh, loan. They can't go to the markets and say, we're gonna have a, a bond issue of 6% over a, a five, eight, 10 year period. They're really at the beholden of being whatever the Fed decides that translates into what they're paying. So as the Fed fund rate has raised, so has the, the loan rate that small businesses are having to pay. And right now it's about from four in the pandemic age to now about nine, and we think it's gonna go higher than that. So. That's putting a big strain on small businesses, and that's one of the big things that are going on. The other thing that's been going on is that small businesses, after the pandemic, as we all know, there was a high demand for a lot of goods and, and, and services that small businesses provided. They could really, and we did a study on how um, what businesses were feeling in the next three months that they could raise their prices. And at the end of the pandemic and going forward, they've never had it so good in the small business world. They were allowed, they were able to raise prices and people were price taking and whatever they charged, they were willing to sell. As that went forward, they started to have to raise wages and, and the survey started to say in the next three months, who is going to raise wages? And at the beginning, it was very wide gap between pricing and wages. As we've moved forward and in 2023, although it's changed a little bit now, the, the the companies that think they can raise prices is about equal to those that are raising wages. And we all know, John, wages are sticky. Um, do right. people deserve higher wages? Probably it's been a little bit uh, a, a little bit late in coming and, and happy it is, but that is putting a lot of pressure on small businesses with the higher wages, no pricing control. And we think that that's gonna cause, somehow there's gonna have to, to be a, a give up in, in profitability. And then to compensate for that, probably layoffs coming shortly. Right. And and then and of course, the other thing that would give is that even if you don't do that, uh, the higher wages are sometimes passed through to the end user client, the consumer uh, buyer of products and services in the form of higher costs. So, uh, you know, if a lawnmower costs you two hundred and thirty dollars uh, a few uh, a few uh, months ago, but now the Black and Decker employees are getting a ten percent wage, maybe that two hundred and thirty dollar lawnmower costs two hundred and sixty dollars now yeah. just because. 
the cost of, of building the lawnmower has gone up as, as, as a simple example of you know, what it means and how inflation can become sticky uh, even as the supply chains ease up because of the pent up uh, use uh, implementation of COLA clauses and so forth. Right. Could, I, could I ask you to weigh in on a couple of things? We're, we're recording this now in the middle of November 2023, and we've had a few things that I don't want to put you on the spot because I don't even know if your team has even looked at this yet or if they have any opinions. But I, I, I'm, in, I'm curious intuitively. Last week, the United States government had a credit downgrade. And on Friday, we are looking at the distinct possibility of a market of a government shutdown. And these are the sorts of things which uh, the, the former is usually a canary in the coal mine with regard to um, tougher times ahead, given that the, even the government now has to pay more to borrow. And then the likelihood of a government shutdown uh, could, could uh, fast track the, uh, the job losses that you were talking about a moment ago. Uh, do you have any thoughts about either of those things? I, well, yeah. So on, on the... Uh, uh, the the amount of interest and the debt repayment etc that's going on you know they it said last last week i believe it was last week at the end of last week they were talking about the U, us is now paying a trillion dollars annually for their debt interest on debt which is the first time in history that's ever happened obviously that's going to uh, have repercussions in the markets and repercussions for government government shutdown coming up later this year is is or late uh, opportunity for a government shutdown later this week is obviously gonna probably accelerate all the things that we're looking at. Um, but from our perspective, there's a couple of things. One of the reasons why, why monetary policy, it's the lag of monetary policy that really makes that delay between the hiking cycle and the recessionary environment. We talked earlier about it being 23 months. That's really the lag that happens. One of the things that is going on is probably a positive and will slow down that stimulus that's going on as we get into a, uh, as we get into it, or as we stay into a tight market, labor market, stimulus, as you know, John, should be as we're in a very good labor market or a tight labor market, the deficit goes down. And as we go into a market where there's high unemployment, we're in a weakening environment, the deficit goes up. For the last 10 years, that has been decoupled in the US. And right. as we've got into and, and been in good labor markets or good, good uh, economic environments, the government stimulus has still been going on. And that's part of the reason why monetary policy hasn't been as effective. And in fact, if you look at it right now, we're, we're at probably the, well, I think we are at the widest gap between um, the deficit as a percentage of GDP and employment. So right. all the talk around cutting back on spending in the US will probably be helpful when it comes to um, reconditioning the US to when we have a stimulus and when we don't, but it'll also, that cap will help that monetary policy to put us in a better spot, perhaps forcing us into a, a weakening environment, putting us in a better spot. I wonder if you could uh, weigh in on the narrative we've been getting from central bankers, both uh, Macklem in, uh, in, in Canada and Jay Powell in the US with regard to hire for longer. For uh, for some time, a couple of years ago, prior to the rate hikes in 2021, uh, the narrative is was we're going to let inflation run hot because it'll be transitory. And they said it and um, not everyone believed them, but but people gave them the benefit of the doubt because they had 30 years of of history of keeping inflation under control and and keeping the economy growing. Uh, 
Right. By early 2022, mm -hmm. it became obvious that that they had miscalculated and that they would have to uh, hike uh, substantially because inflation was now becoming un, 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 unhinged. And now we're at the point where they're saying, you know, we really have to do whatever we can to, to bring inflation down to 2%. And it's gone much lower. It's gone from, you know, 8% in Canada and the US to less than 4%. But the first 4% is the easy part. It's the 2% that gets you from four down to two. That's yeah. proving to be really, really troublesome. And uh, as a result, uh, it seems now that if we can leave central bankers and not everyone does because their credibility is not what it used to be, but they are now saying uh, that they will keep rates higher for longer and they will do whatever it takes for as long mm -hmm. as it takes inflation down. I don't think that necessarily means rate hikes, but I think they're they're looking at kicking the can down the road a, a very long way before we actually have another rate cut. Can you weigh in on your thoughts on that? Yeah. And that to, to be honest, John, that's probably the crux of, of all that we speak about when it comes to the uh, anatomy of a recession. We have a slide in here and, and the caption on the slide. Um, if we were looking at it, the caption on the slide is that don't make the same mistake twice. And we really believe that's what the Fed's trying to do. What they're what they're attempting to accomplish is it is they want to make sure that they the rates are higher for longer to make sure that they can force slack in the labor market so that we don't have a repeat of what what went on in the 70s. And let me just kind of that's kind of the synopsis. But let's go back and I'll explain that a little bit for you and uh, and and the people that are are watching the podcast later on. So when there's, there's been 13 rate hiking cycles over the last, since 1950s, there's been 13 of them. 10 have ended in a recession. Three have ended in a soft landing. And, and a soft landing meaning the Fed cut and were able to keep the economy or the market out of a recession. And what was the, the similarities and the differences in those three periods? The three periods were 66, 84, 84 and, 94. and 95. You got it, brother. You are right on yeah. top of it. I know I'm not telling you that, John. I know you you know these and study hard on these. But in '66, um, when when the Fed pivoted, the inflation rate was 3.3 percent. In 12 months, inflation had actually gone up, and in 36 months or three years, inflation had doubled. In '84 and '95, inflation one year out and three years out actually went down, which is what they were hoping for. They thought they got it right at the right time and inflation went down over those one and three year periods afterwards. So what was the difference and what are they trying to not have happen again here so that in 1966 inflation went up in the other two years or the other two uh, times it didn't. And, and what they're really looking at, John, is the unemployment rate. In 1984, the unemployment rate in the US was uh, about 7%. Uh, in 1995, and I'm, I'm drawing just a fraction blank here, but I think it was about five, it was five and a half, six percent, somewhere in that range. But in both instances, there was slack in the market and the employment market. So that that slack was the reason they believed that inflation was able to go down as the economy was able to ramp up without outside pressures. In 66, when inflation actually went up after one year and three years, what was the difference? The unemployment rate in 1966 was 3.8%. The unemployment rate now in the U.S. just went from 3.8 to 3.9 percent. So in both those instances, a very tight labor market, and, and we believe that the Fed doesn't want to let its foot off the gas or or put the brake uh, on interest rate hikes or bringing interest rate down 
until they see some slack in the labor market. That's really, we think, what they're trying to do. And they don't want to make the mistake of the 60s that, among other things, was contributory to what happened in the 70s. And you and I are old enough to remember the 70s, John. Lots aren't in this world anymore. Um, but but we do remember, and we don't we don't want to repeat that again. It's funny. Uh, the book Bullshift came out about a year ago, and around the same time, another book called Mega Threats, written by Nuriel Rubini, was released uh, in in October November of twenty twenty two. And uh, Rubini talks. He 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 spends an entire chapter talking about precisely that story about how the uh, the lessons learned in the nineteen seventies and being too timid. In trying to get inflation under control, yeah. uh, led to um, the, the very, very high inflation of the very early 80s, in particular, and the ascendancy of Paul Volcker to the Federal Reserve Board chair in the U.S. And uh, what a lot of people don't think about when they think about the bullshit of their investing experience. Most people who are investors today have been investing for uh, 40 years or less. Well, if you look, start if you start keeping score at around say 1981 up until um, maybe uh, well, when the rate hike started in March of last year, we, we've had a 40-year um, bull market in bonds as bonds have gone from an all-time high down to effectively zero. Right. And those uh, those tailwinds have now become headwinds, and uh, but those are headwinds with a lag. And we're just now starting to feel the lag, but the world has changed. And a lot of people are loath to, to acknowledge that the, uh, the, the things that we've had uh, working in our favor for a full 40 years, pretty much without exception, just a 40 year long secular bull run in, in bonds as interest rates have gone from the very high teens to effectively zero. It's basically half a percent per year uh, drop every year for 40 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's now over. And now we've gone from zero to 5% in, in whatever it is, 18 or 19 months. And, and we're not going to be changing that level of, uh, of, of rate for, uh, for the foreseeable future, probably not until at least the second half of next year at the earliest, unless, of course, something breaks. Correct. Can we talk maybe about that lag effect one more time? Because I, I, I think it's, I know we've already touched on it, Dave, and I don't want to I don't want to super belabor it, but I do think it's worth touching on again. Um, you say it's usually about 23 months on average between the first hike and the average onset of a recession. The yeah. first hike was in March of 2022. 23 months later is February of 2020, uh, uh, 2024. Yep. And uh, that—that's uh, we're now looking at uh, you know maybe 90 days or so of. Uh, uh, of an over-under of, of when the recession is, is likely to hit. It could happen at any time. It could start tomorrow, and it might not happen until, um, you know, the spring of 2024. But it seems it seems that it's highly likely. And so I want to make sure that the people listening understand that the, the lag effect is such that just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't happen. Do you have any... Um, is there any... A recession... And a, and a market downturn are different things. So a recession is the real economy, it's people losing jobs, it's, it's what have you, GDP uh, slows down and might, might, GDP uh, might actually contract, whereas a bear market is, is stock market valuations uh, dropping. I don't think there's ever been a time in history where the stock market has hit its bottom before a recession has formally started. Uh, I, I don't know if you, can think of any example. I don't think there are any examples in history, but I think there's also a consensus that um, the work that's being done on the anatomy of a recession project is because it's for the U.S. 
the U.S. and the Canadian economy are, are they're following more or less in lockstep, but in many ways, Canada's a bit ahead, and many people would expect that if there's a recession in Canada, it would come before the recession in the U.S. Were, were, were to materialize, and therefore it could be happening almost any time. Do you have any thoughts about any of those things? Because I know I've thrown a lot out there, but I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, and and again, this is a U.S.-centric uh, study, John, and, and I know that Jeff does have some thoughts around the Canadian market, but we don't do anything specific to the Canadian market, although it's, it's probably a hand-in-hand. -hand. Um, so I, I think I can talk to what you spoke about earlier about the U.S. side of it, and you know, you're right. If if you if if after this discussion or you know the people that are are wondering whether there's going to be a recession and making their own taking food for thought and making their own decision around it, if you believe that we're going to a recession and we haven't entered it yet, you're right, John. There's never been a time where the market low has happened before the beginning of a recession. It, it's not happened in history. It, on average, the length of a recession is about ten months. And the market bottom happens about two thirds of the way through, about six months in or seven months in. That's when you'll see the market bottom from the restart of start of a recession. Doesn't mean it's always that way. I mean, it's an average. There's there's four or five times in history when it's been one or two months, and it almost happens coincidentally. There's other times when it happens much much later on. Um, and and in fact, in some of the studies, I believe there's also one one time where the recession was over before we hit the market low. But traditionally. It's about six months in after the start of a recession. It could be a couple. We think it, there's a chance it could be a couple months in, um, only because we've had so we've had a lot of pain. This has been a different cycle for for investors, and we've had a lot of pain all, all right already. That's part of the reason why we don't think traditionally the from the the start of a recession to the bottom of the market is about thirty percent drop. We don't think we we're, we're going to see that severe a downturn. Jeff and Josh are talking about maybe 20, less, a little less than 20, between 15 and 20% downturn um, because of all the pain that we've had. So you are correct, John, in saying that it's, it's, if you believe a recession is coming, the market bottom will happen after that. A lot of people are unaware, but if you look at the S&P 500, since we're talking about U.S. data, it hit its all-time high in January of 2022. So we are now already 22 months after the all-time high so people have already gone 22 months without seeing a new high in in their yeah. investment portfolio at least as it pertains to us stocks so that's yeah another thing to think about in terms of not only how much things might drop but also how long you have to endure before you start you know experiencing new highs yeah all right i think we should wrap this up uh dave it's been a real pleasure i, I always like to finish my um my podcast uh, interviews with uh with two sections and the first is called that's bullshit that's where I ask my guests to talk about something that that they think uh, could be done differently in the financial services industry. It could be anything. What is it that that sort of is is in your mind that you think could be done differently or better? Well, uh, so listen, John. Truthfulness, I'm I'm a failed advisor, <laughs> and I was an advisor many 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 moons ago before I first met you long ago. So I was an advisor before that. And, and I was uh, I failed at it for a number of reasons. Do I think it'd be better now? Yeah, I think maybe. But one of the things that I look at from a financial a profession and what goes on right now in the industry, I think it's become a very, very difficult job. Because I, I look at what goes on in the industry. And, and I remember when I first started off as an advisor, as a young guy, it seems like 100 years ago now, but 
people will get quarterly statements. And that's the only time they get access to what was going on in the market. Then I remember, I believe brokerages started to go to, and I could be wrong on this, but to monthly statements, or I was introduced to monthly statements. And I recall being in an office, you know, in my 20s, and people would say, oh, everybody gets to see it on a monthly basis. That makes it so hard for them to stay invested, you know, the ups and downs. Well, you and I both know now, John, information and timeliness of information is, is immediate. It's anytime you and I want to know what's going on. We can follow the market on a second-by-second second basis now. We can follow our investments uh, that quickly, you know, funds every day. Like, it's just to the point where I think information overload has really hurt investor behavior. And I wish that we didn't have access to all of that information. I wish people would take it, look at it quarterly, rely on their, their financial advice. Like a guy like you, John, that's been in the business for a long time, very successful at it. I am sure that if you said what makes you successful, it's keeping people invested. They can right. stay invested. They're not so broadly diversified that they, they can, they, you know, markets either get washed out or they can never really get ahead because they're always on the, the, you know, they're not getting advice that allows them to have outsized returns over the long period of time. And a lot of that advice is about just staying the darn course, be able to, to go through those difficult times, not pay attention to it, and then open up your statements in a year, and you'll see that you're going to be better off. And I, I got to be honest, okay. the proliferation of info, John, drives me crazy. It really does. It's it's a it's a perverse thing because I think all of us are intuitively in favor of transparency, absolutely, and, and getting information out there. But the the the, the counterintuitive thing is that information sometimes allows investors uh, to engage in some self harm because they get overly emotional with the news of the day and they don't think about the longer term plan. All right, let's uh, let's then wrap this up with the way that I like to finish, which is uh, shift happens. What would you do? to deal what would you recommend as being a possible way a hack even to to deal with this problem about people making decisions based on having too much access to the information about their portfolio's performance well i you know i i, I don't know if there's a, a thing you can do you can't turn off the information but i would really hope and rely that that some of the very best and, and the very best financial advice that people get they're going to people that they're going to rely on for the decision making for that information, however they make those decisions. But if they can get a great financial advisor or someone who can help them with that so they don't feel the need to continue to look at it, they can look at long-term returns, something I'm sure you do, John, I think that'd be the yeah. greatest thing. I don't have an answer for it. I, I kind of chickened out on you. I know what I'd love. I don't have the answer for it, but I, I hope that people can really rely on financial advice, take that clutter out of their uh, out of their life and worry about other things and have a little bit more fun. That'd be great. Super. Great. That's a great way to end. Dave, I want to thank you for taking your time today. That's been it's great, been a John. wonderful Thanks. discussion. Yeah. And uh, all the best to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, all the best as well. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshit, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.